Well, anyway, um, New Year's resolutions. I, I think all of us aspire to be and to do some things this next year. And, and uh, the, the series that we're starting today actually has to do with resolutions, sort of. But the idea came from an article that I read. And um, it said that 8% of people who make New Year's resolutions keep them. They actually achieve their goals, which is probably why no one does resolutions anymore. It makes us feel bad about ourselves. But uh, 8% of people actually achieve the thing that they're aiming for in the new year. And I wanted, to, um, I wanted to talk about how do we achieve the things that we're aiming for, whether it's a New Year's resolution or it's just something that, you know, is uh, in our life that we're trying to take care of, we're trying to get rid of, we're trying to become, whatever it might be, um, how do we reach those goals? And if you're, if you're cynical like me and you hear somebody say, well, here, we're going to start a series on how to, you know, be your best and blah, blah, you would say, look... There are so many other resources. In fact, if you go on and you look at podcasts, there's tons of podcasts that's going to tell you how to achieve your goals, and there's software to help you do this, and there's coaching and training and all of these things, and, and uh, you haven't looked into any of those, so why would you, do, uh, why would you care too much about the next, uh, next four weeks? Well, I would say because um, what all of those things, however great they may be, they address how you can become or how you can achieve the things that you're aiming for. But I think they miss the most important and crucial question, definitely the first question that should be asked, which is, what should we be aiming for in this coming year? It's because there are a ton of things that we could do in the next year of our life. In fact, we might try to do most of them, running around, just trying to do all the things that we, we possibly can. But there's a much smaller list of things that we should be doing. And I have a, I have a little bit of difficulty differentiating between what I could do and what I should do. And I have a feeling you are in the same boat. Because if we sat down and I said, hey, you lived another year of life, 2018, why don't you tell me what happened why don't you tell me, you know, in, those, in that entire year, what did you accomplish? What kind of impact did you have? And you might sit there for a minute and you think, well, okay, let's see. I know I was super busy and we ran around a lot and we had money in the bank, but it didn't stay there long. It was constantly going out. So we, we were doing, there was something happening, but all I can really come up with is like we kept the kids alive, fed and somewhat dressed and yeah, that was kind of what my uh, year added up to. And that's kind of how my year added up as well. Is you look at it and you go, ah, man, I know we did a lot, but I don't know what we did. And it might be because we focused so much on all the things that we could do, but we never really focused on the things that we should do. The things that are going to bring, you know, lasting impact, fulfillment, that's going to maybe change your life or some lives around you. And so I want to look at a book of the Bible. It's actually one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's the book of Nehemiah. And it's in the Old Testament. And uh, when Amy and I found out that our second child was going to be a boy, we started discussing baby names. And I threw out, you know, I love the book of Nehemiah. You think maybe we could? She said no. And so I went with the second best option, which was Ezra. Now, Ezra, if you're not a Bible person, is right before Nehemiah. It actually used to be one book kind of telling the same story. And so I, you know, we settled for uh, Settle for Ezra. Don't tell him I said settled, but we settled for Ezra. But it's a great book of the Bible. And the reason why I like it is because it talks about vision and it talks about leadership and it talks about purpose and, and it's super practical. If you're not a church person, you're not a Bible person, this book and this series is going to be great for you. Because it is going to be something that you can take, whether you believe any of this stuff or not, you're going to be able to take these principles and these insights and you're going to be able to apply them to your life uh, immediately. 
And so let me give you a little background information about the book of Nehemiah so we're all on the same page and so the story uh, makes sense. So if you go back uh, to the beginning, you go back to, well, at least the beginning of Israel, you have this nation of Israel in which God has chosen these people, this group, and he's raised them up into a nation, and he said, you are going to be my chosen people. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to reveal certain things about myself to you. And we're going to have this unique, beautiful relationship, and you, in turn, are going to uh, make my name great and bless the entire world. And so it happens. He raises up this nation, Israel, and he has this unique relationship, and they stand out in the world, and their God is different. And we find that kind of the, the climax of Israel's history was during what is oftentimes referred to as the golden era. It is the time in which King David and King Solomon were ruling, and everyone was prosperous, and they were powerful. But very quickly after Solomon dies, the nation starts to fall apart. It eventually splits into two different nations, and you've got in the north Israel and in the south Judah. And if you fast forward through human history, you find out, or, or through Israel's history, you find out that the north Israel eventually is just wiped off the map. It's gone. doesn't exist anymore. And the reason is because uh, other nations surrounding Israel continues to attack and to, 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 to dominate and eventually destroy uh, God's chosen people. And the reason why God allowed this to happen was because he would continue to send them these prophets. And he would say, okay, through these prophets, guys, I gave you certain commands. I gave you certain things to follow. You're supposed to be my people. You're supposed to be different. And they continue to say, mm, no, we're good, God, thanks. And he sent them warning after warning. Hey, there's going to be consequences. I'm going to have to discipline you. And they just kept saying, no, God, we're good. And so God allowed them to be disciplined. Well, about uh, 400 years after David and Solomon, the south, Judah, uh, still existing, but it's been, uh, it's been pretty beat up at this point. And then this giant world leader, Babylon, comes in, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he takes over Judah. He goes into the city of Jerusalem, and they just destroy it. The gates are burned. The walls are knocked down. Solomon's temple, this is like the centerpiece. This is where God's presence was. This grand, beautiful temple destroyed. And then he takes all of the people in the city, and he starts marching them into exile in Babylon for the next 70 years. Well, there's a ton of fighting that happens uh, throughout this region, and we see that uh, there will be different kingdoms that rise, and they will dominate, and then they will fall. And, and so we see this other kingdom come up, the king of uh, uh, Persia, and Cyrus the Great. And he goes into Babylon, and he takes over Babylon. He de uh, defeats them. And then as he's doing that, he says to everybody who's been captured and brought into this land from their homeland, he says, if you're here and you're from another place, you can go home. Everybody is free to go. So you Jews, you guys can go back to Jerusalem. You, you're free to go. And so some people decide, okay, we're going to go back. And so we see these groups of people begin to, to go back to Jerusalem, which has pretty much been decimated. And then we see other groups of people who this is the only place that they've ever known. I mean, they've been there for 70 years. They were born there. And so they decide this is kind of home to us, and so we're going to stay. And so the book of Nehemiah that we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks, it takes place 90 years after uh, the Persian Empire takes over and starts to allow people to go back. And so here's what it says. Uh, Nehemiah verse 1, 1 says this, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, uh, in the month of Kislev, which is, I know this is like review for you guys, but uh, it's like mid-November through mid-December, right? 
just for the, there's a couple of people I can tell are like, oh, when is that? Yeah, okay. Uh, in the 20th year, which again, review 445, is around 444 uh, BC, while I was in the citadel of Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire. Now, I know that uh, there's probably some people in this room where um, maybe you're not a Bible scholar. In fact, you're not even interested in the Bible because you think that it is absolutely ridiculous that adults would sit in and listen to somebody talk about this ancient book that is pretty much full of myths and fairy tales. And I want to say to you, one, I'm glad that you're here, but the other is, let's just, let's time out for a second. Let's hold on. Maybe there's more to the Bible than you initially thought, because if you look at human history, especially the last couple thousand years, you will see that the Bible has transformed the world, no, no debate about it, and that really brilliant, smart, influential people have taken it seriously. In fact, they've dedicated their lives to it. And so maybe there's something to it that at first glance we're missing. So the Bible, and you know this, the Bible is not just a book. In fact, it's not a book. It's a library. We happen to just put it together in one book because it's a lot easier to transport that way. But it's actually a library of books, 66 books written by about 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years. And the reason why we put it together is because it's telling one giant story of how God is working in human history and the things that he's done. And so in Genesis, we see it begins with this whole thing where um, God has created everything, including us. And quickly things begin to fall apart because instead of us being in a relationship with our creator, we decide to go our own way. We will be in charge. And so this thing called sin enters the world. And with sin, this rebellion against God, the consequences are, are pain and suffering and death. And then the rest of the story, from then on out, the rest of the Bible is telling the story of how God is reconciling man to himself. Where his children who have gone astray, the Heavenly Father is bringing them back into a relationship with him. And it begins, and we see it with Israel, but then we, we see its culmination in this person of Jesus in which man can finally be reconciled. And so, when I hear somebody talk about, uh, talk about the Bible and say, ah, you know what, the Bible is just, just a bunch of hocus pocus, just a bunch of myths, I want to say, well, wait a minute. Maybe there's something more to it. Maybe there's something bigger that's happening here. There's tons of different, there's tons of different people. There's tons of different kind of plot lines and, and genres. There's narrative and biography and poetry. And, and so when you don't believe in the Bible, I want to ask, okay, do you not believe in David's poetry? Because I don't even know if that's an option. How do you not, I mean, it just is, right? It's poetry. You may not like it, but can you not believe in it? Okay, well, what about Moses? Maybe it's you, you don't believe in the things that Moses was talking about. Oh, I know what it is. It's Paul and his letters, or it's the Gospels. It's the Gospels. The thing about Jesus and the miracles that bothers you. Okay, which one is it? Is it Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Because different guys wrote them. You knew that. Different guys wrote them, different perspectives, different accounts, claiming to be eyewitnesses. You knew all that kind of stuff. Maybe if you're not a Bible person, you're not too sure, but I get it. I get it. But maybe there's more to this whole Bible story than we first believed. And so when we look at the story of Nehemiah, we see right off the bat, the part that normally we'd skip over because it tells us a bunch of months and dates and locations that we don't know, he's telling us, this is history. I'm writing this, and I'm telling you when and where and who is involved, and so I want you to read it as history. What's crazy about the Bible is, um, the Bible, when it, 
when it talks about history, um, sometimes, and this has been happening ever since it was written, people want to object to it and go, well, I don't see it, I haven't found it, and it keeps proving to be true. And I know I'm biased, but listen to this. Ten years ago, only ten years ago, remember, this is 2,500 years ago this was written. Ten years ago, archaeologists are out on a dig, and they discover the very walls that are going to be talked about in this story. You can go there, you can fly there today, and you can see it. 2,500 years ago, ten years ago, we find out, ah, man, who would have thunk? It's, it's actually true. So we continue on. Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah, remember, that's the, the south part of Israel, with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Now, he had probably never been to Jerusalem, the city before. Remember, he was born in a different place, but he cared deeply about this, this, uh, this city because this was the city, not only that he found his heritage, but this was the city in which God was supposed to transform the world through these people in this location, that this is where King David sat on the throne, that this is where the temple was, this is where the Ark of the Covenant and God's very presence was. It was supposed to be through here that he blessed the entire world. And so it wasn't just a city to him. It was something far bigger than that. It was God's promise to change the world through it. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been burned with fire. Now, he gives this report that the city is destroyed, and that's not new news, because it's been destroyed for about 150 years before this. But the reason why he was asking is because um, right before this story, we find the story of Ezra. And Ezra was sent to Jerusalem to start teaching people about God. As these exiles were coming home, he would begin to teach them. And part of uh, kind of what he was hoping to do was, as he's teaching these people, to start rebuilding the city. And the report came back that Ezra hasn't had any success in the rebuilding process. Verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So the harsh reality of the world that we live in, and we see it here in the story of Nehemiah, is that sometimes the most motivating and clarifying and impactful moments of our life are the moments in which our heart is broken. We see this in Nehemiah. We see that the fuel for the, the change that he's going to make is the result of a, a broken heart where he knows what should be. He knows who God's people should be and what the city was once and what it could be and the impact it could have on the world. And when it wasn't that way, his heart was broken. We see this in the Gospels. We see this in the whole story of, of God is God's heart was broken for mankind. He said he, he created us and he knew who we could be and what we could become and the lives that we could live and the relationship with him that we were supposed to have and when it was broken and the consequences of it, it broke his heart. In fact, it broke his heart so much that that's why he sent his son. And you know this to be true. You, you see the people who inspire you, the documentaries that you watch and the biographies that you read and the people whom you want to be like or you want your kids and your grandkids to be like. Those are the people who have had an impact on the world in a positive way. And oftentimes it's because their heart broke over something. And they said, that can't be. We have to change this. People like Lincoln and Wilberforce and Mandela and MLK, Mother Teresa, Bonhoeffer, the list could go on, is these people saw the way the world was and it broke their heart and they said, it just can't be this way. I want to be a part of the change. As we think about this coming year and we think about all the things that we could do and, and we narrow in on all the things that we, we should do, the things that we should be focused on, the things that are going to have lasting impact and 
bring real fulfillment and life change? As we think about those things, I think the question emerges right off the bat. And the question is, what breaks your heart? What moves you? As you look at the world and you think about the things that break your heart, when you look at your community and you look at your neighborhood and the school and the, maybe it's the whole world at large, you look at something and you go, oh, it just breaks my heart that this is the way things are. Or maybe it's a little bit different. Maybe it's you look at the way things are and you get excited. You're inspired when you start to imagine the way things could be if someone stepped in and brought change. It moves you. It inspires you. It stirs something within you. I think that's the beginning, the process of finding out what are the things that we, we should be focused on in this coming year. For some of us, it's a really tough question because if we're being honest with ourselves, we have spent most of our lives worrying about what I want and what those around me, the closest, my loved ones, what, those are my primary concerns. And to start thinking outside of that bubble is kind of difficult. And so for me, I had to wrestle with this all week as I'm reading through the scripture and I'm, I'm thinking about the sermon is, what moves me? And I started to come up with a list of things that move me. And a lot of them have to do with this, this church, of course, is one of the things that moves me is when somebody comes here and I can tell that they're, they're not too sure why they're here. Maybe somebody dragged them. Maybe there's some circumstance in life. And so they're kind of coming in and they're like, what am I doing here? And I love that look on their face where they've got questions and they've got concerns and they're wrestling with some stuff. And I'm like, yes, you're taking them. Yes, you're here. You're in the right place. Let's do this. And then one day if they keep showing up, something clicks and they go, oh, I get it. I think this is real. And they decide, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my life to this this Jesus guy, and, and then their life begins to transform. One of the clearest examples of this, and uh, Doyle mentioned Rooted earlier, is um, watching people come in on night one of Rooted. And night one, if you've never been through Rooted, is the kickoff night. Everybody comes together, and uh, we kind of talk about what's coming up in the next 10 weeks. And it's funny watching some people come in, because they're coming in literally with their arms crossed like, <laughs> okay, I just paid $50, right? This better be good. And it's amazing watching them come back because afterward we do this big celebration dinner and the people who walked in with their arms crossed are now going, I believe, with their arms raised and they're jumping in a freezing cold pool and they're getting dunked because they believe in Jesus. And it's just like, wow, that moves me. I think that's amazing. I'm also moved by people who have been walking with the Lord and you can tell their life is about this. They're passionate. They're in this thing. Their whole life revolves around Jesus, and they're just like, what can I do to serve him? You can see it in their marriage and the way they raise their kids and the way that their, their character is in the workplace. You can just see these people are all in. But you know what breaks my heart? Mediocre Christians. The Bible calls them lukewarm Christians. And those are the people that say, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian, but they kind of just put one foot in. Because it bothers me and it breaks my heart because, one, they're fooling themselves, but they're also doing a lot of damage to the people around them. Because they believe that they believe, and I'm not sure that they do. I'm not, that, I'm not the judge, but it just makes me nervous. But I also see the impact that they're having on the people around them. Their kids and their family and their coworkers and their neighbors, because they're looking at it going, well, that's a Christian. I'm not interested. See, when I show up on this campus... And I get to see every single weekend, and it grows weekend by weekend. I get to see the, the families coming in here. And it's mom and dad, or it's grandpa and grandma, aunt and uncle, and they're dragging their kids in, and, and their, 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 their youth are going to the warehouse pretending like they don't know them. And it's just, I love it. 
I, watch, I love walking the parking lot just seeing all these families come in because here's, here's what I know is if they keep showing up, their life's going to change. If they keep showing up, here's what I've seen over and over again my entire life is I've seen marriages that would have never survived, but because they had a faith community and because they had a faith, it was saved. I've seen kids who are raised in this faith community with parents who love the Lord, and they turn out dramatically different than the rest. See, I know what it looks like, because I, I had the privilege to grow up in that, that household. I can't imagine what it would look like if I didn't, because I hit some pretty dark places in my life. And in those really dark moments, if I didn't have that, that faith community, if I didn't have that, um, that, that personal relationship with, with God, I I think I probably would have done some pretty destructive things to escape the pain I was in. And I'm so thankful that my parents, even on the weekends, I didn't want to be here. They dragged me because they said, you need to be here. But on the flip side, what breaks my heart is when I roll up to my kids' school and I see the hundreds and hundreds of kids and families that live in our community that aren't here yet. And I watch those parents in, and they're just doing their best, and they're surviving, and they're wandering through life. And I go, oh, I want so badly for you to know this Lord. And I see those little kids, and oh, they're beautiful, and they're fun, and they're full of excitement. And I know, just like all of us, they're going to face some really tough stuff. And I just want them to go, but at least I have Jesus. But they don't. And that breaks my heart every day when I roll up to that school I so badly want to just grab people. Maybe one of these days I will. That's why I'll be in jail. And I'll just go, you need Jesus, please. And they'll be like, you need to get away from me. Um, but that's why, that's why we as a church, we spend so much time and energy making this a place that is over-the-top, ridiculously fun for people to come to. Because we know that life can change here. And it does. I hear it every single week. So this next part of the story of Nehemiah, we don't have time to look into it right now, but he begins to pray, and he begins to ask God to, to use him, to give him strength that he knows what he's about to enter into is going to be scary, it's going to be dangerous. And as he finishes this prayer, he throws in this one little random fact at the end, and I don't have time to get too much into it, but I did want to kind of read the last line of this chapter because um, it's the last line, so it's got to be important. Obviously, the author thought it was important, but it's also very random. But I think it's a key to part of living a life of impact. So here's, here's what he says at the very end, and, and uh, in verse 11, it says this. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, to you and I, that doesn't mean a whole lot, cupbearer to the king. What it meant was um, that he would sample the king's wine before he would drink it to make sure it wasn't poison. And it doesn't sound like a great job, but it's a very prestigious job. In fact, this is probably the most trusted man in the kingdom. And he had daily access to the most powerful person on earth at the time. And so he's throwing in this seemingly random fact. But the reason why I think he threw it in here is because this is the thing that is either going to make or break Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah was blessed. He lived a life of privilege. He had everything he could ever want at his fingertips. Israel, they were blessed. They were God's chosen people. They got to know their creator on an intimate level. You and I were blessed by the very fact that we're sitting in this room. We are financially blessed. We're in probably the minimum top 10% of the world's earners. 
Not to mention the uh, incredible blessings of the family, the, the spouse, the kids, the, the careers. That We have so many things that God has given us. And we have to realize that those were, were given to us. Is the American way is we're pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, but if we're being honest, we did very little to get where we are. And some of you guys are insulted by that, but think about it. You didn't choose when or where you were born, which is huge. You didn't choose the talents that you were born with. I'm pretty sure there's resources and opportunities that were given to you. And so, so much of our life is a gift, and we should be incredibly thankful for that gift. But here's what I think Nehemiah knew is with God's incredible blessings comes danger. God's blessings can be a dangerous thing because they are a thing that we have to treat and we have to handle with care. And if we misuse them, there can be devastating consequences. Uh, I think the most obvious example of this is parenting. Wow, what a gift it is to be a parent most days. What a gift, right? I try to sometimes remind myself in those moments, like, this is a gift, <laughs> Uh, oh, I want to tie him up like a gift. Um, <laughs> anyway. But, but if you think about what a blessing it is, and it's one of the biggest blessings we can have, we also realize that it's something that we have to be very cautious with. It's dangerous. There can be devastating consequences if we misuse this gift of parenting. See, God blesses us in order for us to be a blessing to other people. Nehemiah knew that the position of privilege that he had was not just to be used for his own gratification, that he was put in this position and that God was going to expect him to do something with this, that it wasn't just for him to relax and, and enjoy his entire life. Yeah, that's part of it, but man, he's, he was going to call on him for something. Israel, they were, they were blessed, and it wasn't just for themselves to hoard. It was for them to bless the entire world. You and I are the same. We've been blessed with different talents and resources and opportunities, and, and we have to remember that, one, who gave it to us, but also what he expects from us with those blessings. And I think the irony of the whole thing uh, uh, with God's blessing is we actually enjoy our blessings more as we give them away. Our time and our talent and our, our treasure, as we give those blessings away, they actually bring more fulfillment and purpose to our lives. And I think I can prove this by just a real quick uh, uh, illustration is, let's imagine you and I are at the end of our life and we are reflecting on all the things that we have done. And we're kind of doing an evaluation of how, how did I live my life? And we kind of do an inventory of all the, all the talents that we were given and all the treasure and all the opportunities and, and we start to look at what it is added up to. Now we might look at it and we go, wow, it added up to I got a couple houses, and they're full of cool stuff, and I got a bank account that's bursting, and I've got, okay. Or we look at that same life, and we reflect, and we go, oh, see, I got to, I got to change a kid's life here. Oh, I got to invest in the kingdom where an entire family now knows Jesus because those simple resources I was given, I got to invest them into something that matters. I got to help somebody overcome addiction. Which of those two scenarios do you think is going to bring more purpose and fulfillment to your life? Obviously the second. And so let me finish with this is at the end of the day, we are given these blessings to bless others, but we get to choose if we will not do that. And a failure to do that can actually have uh, consequences I don't think most people see coming is those blessings can become burdens when misused. 
Israel, it became a burden for them. It actually is the very thing that destroyed them. God blessed them to bless others when they failed to do so, and they thought it was about them. It was something that they earned, something that they deserved. It became the very thing that destroyed them. God removed his hand of blessing and said, okay, if you're not going to do what I told you to do, then I'm going to have to walk away. Nehemiah didn't want to make that same mistake. He said, I know that I've been blessed to be a blessing, and so I will make sure that I use this responsibly. How many people have we seen who have been given incredible natural gifts and opportunities? Beauty and, and talent and, and, and money, and, and it is the very thing that destroys them and their family. I've seen it countless times in people around me. So Nehemiah, and I think us as well, we don't want to fall into this trap. Nehemiah is going to have to move from what is comfortable into the unknown, and comfort is the biggest danger when following God and living a life of impact. Jesus knew this, right? He said this all the time. He said, blessed are those who are filthy rich. He didn't say that. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, yeah, right on, totally. 2019 is my year. Let's go, Jesus. <laughs> there were so many blank looks like, hmm, yes. I knew I liked this Jesus fellow. No, he didn't say that. He said, blessed are you who hunger and thirst, who are poor in spirit, who weep and mourn, are rejected and insulted, because he knew that the more comfortable you are, the less likely you are to step out and live a life of, of, of impact, of real fulfillment. And so when we walk out of here in a moment, I'm going to just warn you. And if you're like me, you'll have a moment of inspiration, quickly followed up with all the reasons why you can't do it, so you can brush it off. Ah, you know, I'm not old enough yet. Maybe when I graduate, maybe when I get a job, maybe when I have some more resources, maybe when the kids are out of the house, maybe when I retire, there will always be a maybe. And so Nehemiah, what he didn't know was he didn't know what hangs in the balance of his decision, that God was nudging him, he was kind of he was kind of pulling on his heartstrings to go and, and do a little construction project. We'll see that he's going to go and rebuild this wall. And so God's giving him this nudge. Hey, why don't you go and, and help rebuild this city? And it might kind of seem small and insignificant. Go and do some construction? But he didn't know what was hanging in the balance. Because at the same time God was working in Nehemiah's heart, he was working in the hearts of other people. And he was orchestrating something. He had a plan. And what would happen is if we fast forward 440 years, that city does get rebuilt, and it does revive, and that temple, it's renewed. And this man named Jesus walks in and declares, I am the Messiah, I am here to save mankind. And it's all from this ripple effect of somebody saying, okay, God, I'll go do a little construction project. Nehemiah could have never imagined that he was beginning this process that would in turn bring the, the Messiah you and I, we don't know what hangs in the balance either when God calls us and he nudges us and he pulls on our heartstrings to do something. We don't know the ripple effect that it may have in other people's lives and throughout human history. We're just not privy to that information. And so the closing question I think that I, I think we should walk away with is, yes, I think we should probably eat less and save more. I should probably eat less and save more. I'm going to eat less and save more. But, but I, think our, I think we're called to something far greater than that. I think God has something so much bigger for our community and, and for you. I think that God wants to do something in us and through us. And here's the good news. The only qualification is just be willing. 
And so if you, if you immediately know what that thing is you're supposed to do, I think you should get on it. This, is, this series is going to be great. But if you're not sure and you're just like, wow, I, I, I don't even know what that thing is. Nehemiah decided that he was going to immediately start praying and fasting, talking to God about what it is that he was supposed to do. And I think that's probably what we should do as well, is we should go, God, I'm willing. I will serve you. I will do whatever you want me to do. Guide me. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for what you are doing in this church, um, not just this, this community as a whole in which you're doing incredible things, and, and we celebrate that, and we are so excited to see you moving but also what you're doing in the hearts and lives of the people here in this room, that you are working in their lives, that you are bringing about some significant life change and that you are using us in some pretty powerful ways. And so, Lord God, we pray that in this next year that we would come with open hands, hearts, minds, and that you would be able to speak to us, that you would be able to use us. And Lord God, we want to say at the end of this year, wow, God used us in some pretty amazing ways. Lord, we thank you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.